Welcome to Tomorrow's World. I'm happy you could join us. On today's program, I'm going to challenge you to consider a very important question. Why do most professing Christians forsake the observance of the holy days mentioned in their own Bible and substitute holidays that were never celebrated by Jesus Christ or His apostles? Does it really matter which days we celebrate as long as we get time off work, go to parties, and enjoy wonderful meals with family and friends? Yes, my friends, it does matter. Do you realize that the seven annual festivals commanded to be observed by the Christian Bible actually predict future events? Some of which have already occurred, but others are yet to occur and will occur in the very near future. These days actually reveal God's master plan for humanity. They explain the big questions that have troubled mankind for millennia. For example, Perhaps you are a Christian and you want to know what happens to your friends and loved ones who are not saved. It's not what most people think. Wouldn't you like to know what the Bible actually reveals? The answer is found in the biblical holy days. Perhaps you're not a Christian, but wouldn't you like to know what these days reveal to us about the near future? Events that will dramatically affect the whole world, and that includes you? So if you want to know what is going to happen in the very near future, you don't want to miss today's program. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Welcome again to Tomorrow's World, where on today's program we are going to see how Biblical Holy Days have profound meaning for you, your loved ones, and for all of humanity. Be prepared to be surprised. The first Biblical festival is known as Passover. To understand it, we have to go back in time, a long time, approximately 3,450 years ago, because certain events that happened then set the stage for events to take place far off in the future. The time was about 1440 B.C., and the place was Egypt. The descendants of the man known as Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt. Life was harsh, and they cried out for freedom, and God sent them a Savior in the person of Moses. Moses' message was simple, let my people go. Now, my friends, put yourself in Pharaoh's sandals. He was ruler over one of the greatest empires of the time. Who was this Moses who was demanding such a thing? What Pharaoh didn't understand was that the author of this demand was God Almighty. 
the creator of heaven and earth. Students of the Bible know that God used Moses to bring nine awesome plagues on Egypt, destroying crops and livestock and making life miserable. But Pharaoh refused to let Israel go. There would be one more plague, a tenth plague, and it has relevance even to this very day. Here's how that plague was announced to Pharaoh. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. How could such a separation between the Israelites and the Egyptians take place? Israelites were instructed to set aside a yearling lamb and slaughter it at twilight on the 14th day of the month. They were then to take some of its blood and paint it over the door and on the two side posts of the doors in the houses in which they lived. After that, they were then to roast and eat the lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and remain in their homes until daybreak. So let's see what happened to the Egyptians and anyone else who failed to follow these instructions. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. This event was remembered from year to year as the children of Israel ate this special meal on its appointed day. And they were instructed to teach their children the following. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. Passover is the first of seven annual festivals given to Israel, but it has significance far beyond that time and that of any single nation. Nearly 1,500 years later, another Savior would come in the person of Jesus Christ. He is a Savior not of Israel only, but of all nations and peoples and Passover would take on far greater significance. Around the age of 30, Jesus of Nazareth began preaching the gospel, meaning the good news of the kingdom of God. He performed such genuine and remarkable miracles that even his critics had to admit they were the work of God. When a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews came to Jesus by night, he confessed the following, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But after three and a half years, jealousy and resentment drove the Jews to turn him over to the Romans to be put to death. This is well known by anyone who reads the New Testament or the Bible. But what is not generally understood is the timing of his death by crucifixion. It was Jesus' habit to observe the holy days and festivals that God gave to ancient Israel. His family traveled to Jerusalem each year as he was growing up to keep the Passover, the day that we just read about instituted nearly 1,500 years earlier. 
His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Later in life, at the end of his three and a half year ministry, Jesus went up to Jerusalem once again to observe the Passover. This would be no ordinary Passover. Professing Christians often speak of the Last Supper which Jesus ate with his disciples. Many pictures have been painted depicting this event. But few realize that this was not just any supper, but was, in fact, the Passover. While Jesus' disciples were remembering the events of the Exodus, Jesus was looking to the future. He got up and washed the disciples' feet, something that was normally done by the lowest servant of the household. This was to teach us that we are to live a life of humble service to others. Then he instituted what properly should be called the New Testament Passover. In Matthew, the 26th chapter, and verses 26 through 28, it explains the following. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. After the meal, Jesus took his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was here that Judas, one of the twelve disciples, betrayed him. The contingent of soldiers that accompanied Judas took him into custody, brutally beat him, abused him, and finally crucified him. All this occurred on the day the Bible calls the Passover. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. We know that there are 365 days in a year, and Jesus could have been crucified on any one of them, but he wasn't. He was crucified on the day of the Passover, after celebrating the Passover meal the evening before. Note that the Bible counts time from sunset to sunset. Was this coincidence? Not at all. It was planned that way long before. The symbolism should be obvious. Several years earlier, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he announced to those who were with him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this statement, we come to understand the role Jesus would play out in his life. The slaughtered Passover lambs were merely a type of what Jesus Christ would do for the world. Just as those who had the blood of a lamb covering the entryway of their homes at the time of the exodus from Egypt, so the blood of Christ would protect those who belonged to him. That Jesus was the antitype of the Passover lambs is stated plainly in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 7. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. To fully understand what it means for Christ to be our Passover, we must understand the problem of sin. According to 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law for sin is the transgression of the law. And Paul tells us we earn something when we sin. 
and what exactly is it that we earn for breaking God's law? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, my friends, we are under the death penalty. As we are told in the third chapter of Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now here is a truth that few professing Christians understand. Yet numerous scriptures reveal this truth. Jesus Christ is our creator. He is the one who created the entire universe. He was the one who gave life to our first parents. And he is the one who spoke the Ten Commandments to ancient Israel. He is therefore the one whose life is so valuable that he could give his life in exchange for ours. All of this is confirmed in the first chapter of Colossians. Speaking of Christ, it tells us, We have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him, and the context clearly shows that Jesus Christ is the one spoken of here, were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. So let's summarize. Israel killed an innocent lamb and put his blood over their doors and on the two side posts of their doors. On the night of the Passover, the firstborn in any house not protected by this symbol died. Every firstborn who had the blood of a lamb covering his house was spared death. Jesus Christ came into this world to be the reality of that Passover lamb. He was brutally slaughtered to pay the penalty that we brought upon ourselves when we sinned. He gave his life in exchange for ours, and all this happened on the day of the Passover, because the ancient ceremony pointed to a more perfect lamb to come. This is why a true Christian should celebrate the Passover with the new symbols of unleavened bread and wine on the 14th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. Whenever we do so, we remember the Lord's death till he comes again. The value of his sacrifice cannot be minimized. Passover is the first of seven festivals ordained by God. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is the second, and it too has profound meaning for us. It teaches us how to respond to Christ's perfect sacrifice. After Israel kept the Passover, they came out of Egypt over a period of seven days. During this journey, they didn't have time to let their bread rise. They were only able to eat flat or unleavened bread. And this seven-day period of eating only unleavened bread became an annual celebration which continues among some Jews to this day. It also continues among Christians who understand the significance of this period of time. Let us first look at the Old Testament command to observe this seven-day festival following the Passover. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. 
And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. What possible relevance could this have for you and me? Many think this was only for the Jews and has long been done away with by the sacrifice of Christ. But is that what the Bible teaches? Let us first see that Jesus kept these days from childhood. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Note that Passover is only one day. But the reference here to the days is understood by serious students of the Bible to mean the days of unleavened bread which follow on the heels of the Passover. Some would argue that this was before his sacrifice, and after the crucifixion these days were no longer to be kept. But again, is that what the Bible teaches? The Apostle Paul is most often used to say that all these festivals are done away. So let's go to his own words in relation not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles at the city of Corinth. Here we find that there was a grievous sin occurring with one of the members of that congregation. Paul explained that their tolerance toward this sin was like leaven that puffs up. In other words, they were filled with pride over their open-minded attitude. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And note this, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is a very clear command from the Apostle Paul to the Gentile Corinthians to keep the feast. But it is more than that. It gives us the New Testament understanding of the meaning of this festival. It is a yearly reminder of our need to continually put sin out of our lives. Just as ancient Israel had to leave Egypt, a type of sin, so we must come out of spiritual Egypt. Egypt was a perfect metaphor for sin, because sin brings us into bondage. We might use the more modern term addiction, but that's what sin is. Sin enslaves us. We become addicted to it, and it is a cruel taskmaster. All one needs to do is look at substance abuse. While having a glass of wine or similar drink may not be a problem, and may even have some positive benefits when used in moderation, it greatly harms and destroys the individual who abuses it. It becomes an addiction from which many people never overcome. Other forms of substance abuse provide no positive benefit and are also highly enslaving, such as drugs and cigarettes. Sexual sins and even gossip become addictive and enslaving. The first and last of the seven days of unleavened bread are high days, days of rest and worship. It was on the seventh day of this festival that the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. This is significant 
As we are seeing, there is meaning behind God's festivals. For the New Testament Christian, this seventh day has great meaning. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So let's review. Passover pictures the death of Christ as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. The Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures our response to that sacrifice, our repentance of sin. The last day of that feast reminds us of our need to be baptized by complete immersion in water. Now let's look at the third festival and see how it fits into God's master plan. The third festival is known as Pentecost. This was the day when God made a covenant with Israel after their departure from Egypt, and He gave them the Ten Commandments. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. In this case, it was a marriage agreement. For God's part, He would be a husband to Israel and bless the nation with prosperity, good health, and a harmonious society. For Israel's part, they would, figuratively speaking, be an obedient wife and keep His commands, specifically the Ten Commandments. History shows us that Israel failed to live up to their part. They were faithless to God and He divorced her. Yes, they wanted the blessings God offered, but God's commandments were not in their hearts. This problem would be solved at a later time. Ezekiel prophesied of this, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Instead of commands written on stone, God would send Israel a teachable heart on which those same commands would be written. This is what the New Covenant is all about. Quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, the Apostle Paul describes the problem and the solution. Notice carefully that it is not the law of God, but the heart of man that is the problem. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Feast of Pentecost came shortly after the resurrection of Christ. Just as something spectacular occurred on the Pentecost after Israel came out of Egypt, so something spectacular happened on this Pentecost. Acts the second chapter describes how God poured out His Spirit on the believers who were gathered together in obedience on that day. You see, my friends, at the first Pentecost, God gave the Ten Commandments written on stone. On this later Pentecost, God gave the Holy Spirit to man to write those same commandments in the mind and on the heart. Acts, the second chapter, verses 36 through 38, summarize the meaning of these first three biblical festivals. 
The Apostle Peter preached a very powerful message on that first day of Pentecost following the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In it, he convicted the Jews who had come together that they were guilty of killing the long-awaited Messiah. They were convicted of their deed and wondered how they could deal with such a tragic sin on their part. Notice how, at the conclusion of Peter's powerful sermon on that day of Pentecost, that we find the Passover, recognition of Christ giving His life for us, unleavened bread, our repentant response followed by baptism, and Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit to write God's laws in our hearts and on our minds. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are seven annual festivals of God as outlined in both the Old and New Testaments. I've only had time to cover the first three today. The next four have not yet been fulfilled, and they reveal spectacular events that will happen in the near future. I'll explain them next week in part two of this series. In the meantime, if you would like to learn more about these wonderful biblical festivals, and what they mean for you and your family, be sure to go to our website, which will be shown momentarily, to read or download our booklet, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. This booklet explains all seven holy days and festivals as outlined in the Bible. This is vital information that you likely have never heard before. Be sure to come back next week for part two of God's Master Plan. See you again next week at the same time and station. Until then, goodbye, friends. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program has been produced by the Living Church of God.